Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, March 16th, 2023. We are talking police today and American police. Americans have very Strong opinions on reforming their police after the George Floyd murder. More than 50% of Americans believe that major reform was needed of the the policing system. And another 30% believe that there needed to be change. In other words, over 8 out of 10 Americans believe that the American police system needs to be changed, that it has problems, perhaps is in crisis. But what to do about it? We've had a number of shows about this subject, did one with Rosa Brooks, uh, who has a wonderfully named book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. Rosa Brooks, who happens to be the daughter of the recently departed uh, Barbara Ehrenreich uh, and a professor of law, uh, I think at Georgetown University, decided to become a cop. And she wrote a book about it. And she was somewhat sympathetic, I think, to the police, particularly I think she outraged her recently departed mother. But others are are less sympathetic. We did a show recently with uh, Michael Hayes on the New York City police system, which he thinks is pretty rotten. He has a new book out, The Secret Files. And some people even go further than than Hayes. Uh, Alex Vitale was on the show a couple of years ago. He's one of the leading proponents of ending policing formally in America. His book, The End of Policing, is controversial, but also pretty influential. A lot of very credible thinkers on what to do with the American police, but perhaps there's nobody more credible um, than uh, my guest today, Neil Gross. Uh, He was a policeman. Uh, He began life as a policeman in Berkeley, California, where I used to live. Now he's a professor of sociology at Colby uh, College uh, in Maine. And he has a new book out, uh, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. Uh, It's out next week. And Neil is joining us from New York City. Neil, did I get those numbers right? Is it eight out of 10 Americans who believe that we need to fix this system? Yeah, I think those. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me on today. Um, You know, I, I think those numbers change a little bit uh, depending on how you ask the question and and when you ask the question. Uh, certainly, after uh, notable period, uh, notable incidents of, of police brutality, uh, of, of lethal police violence, uh, the the number uh, of Americans who want uh, change tends to tends to go up. But yes, in general, that's right. Uh, the large majority of Americans want some kind of change to policing. Um, in reference to um, your discussion of um, Alex Vitale's work, um, you know, a, a, a very small percentage of Americans believe that. Um, we should abolish the police, uh, but there's this real demand for for change. Uh, and uh, you know, currently, the conversation has sort of stalled out. That there isn't a lot happening at the federal level. Uh, there is there are strong pressures on many local departments to change, uh, but the national conversation has um, uh, is not it's not entirely clear where to go. I mean, to be fair to Alex Vitale, I'm not even sure he really believes that we need to end police. It's his way of of, of stimulating the conversation. Um, Neil, is most of the controversy when it comes to people thinking we need to reform the, the, the police bound up with these terrible crimes, the, uh, uh, the 
the, the crimes that triggered the, the Black Lives Matter movement? Or is it bound up with everyday stuff, police being rude on the street, uh, small corruption scandals at local police departments? What's driving the need for reform? You know, I, I think that need for reform has has been there for a long time. You know, the American police institution uh, dates back to the middle of the of the 19th century, uh, and for the first uh, you know 50, 60, 70 years of of its existence, um, uh, particularly in in large northeastern departments, there were there were very strong calls for reform. Um, in those early days, most of the calls for reform uh, had to do with uh, intense corruption. Uh, in the, on the part of police departments uh, and, uh, and uh, profound inefficiencies. Um, but over the decades, uh, there have been you know, persistent calls for reform um, you know, to um, uh, police systems in the South, for example, where um, racism and brutality were, were omnipresent uh, to uh, you know, periods uh, after uh, uh, moments of real protest in the US. So I, th I think it's all of those things. Um, you know, this is an institution that um, has long uh, uh, ill-served the country, uh, and uh, and and I think there are moments like now when uh, when people are are really clear that they 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 want to change, they want something different. You're talking, of course, about a, a post-George Floyd America. Um, Neil, is there something about America with its its embrace in a, in a way a, a frontier country of lawlessness, the the cult of perhaps of violence and of policing and of law and order. Is that a, a fatal mix or has it been a, a fatal mix in, in, in American history? I mean, all, of course, all countries have problems with police. No police is perfect anywhere. But is there a, a, a peculiarly fatal brew when it comes to the history of America and law and order? You know, I, I think some aspects of uh, of American policing uh, and and the problems that it faces are um, are 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 unique to us and to our history. Um, you know, I said before that um, police departments, as we know them today, you know, first took took root in the U.S. in the Northeast, and they were they were modeled on um, on the, the Metropolitan Police of, of London. Uh, in other parts of the country, um, in the Southern U.S., for example, um, police forces. Um, evolved out of um, efforts at um, at, uh, at at capturing um, enslaved people um, who had who had tried to escape. Um, uh, so you know, I think uh, from the standpoint of trying to compare us to other countries, uh, certainly there are aspects of America uh, and American policing that that stand out as as uh, as particularly uh, fraught uh, in moral terms. And, and I guess I would link uh, the connections more to. Uh, to uh, to slavery and to racial inequality uh, as as probably more salient in that regard than uh, a kind of a frontier mentality. Um, that said, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, there are many places in which uh, there are uh, real problems with policing, uh, and uh, and um, they're 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 different in different places. Are there models? We was have the model of Denmark. Whenever I have guests on the show who want to make America a better place, they will say, "Well, in Denmark, they have this that. Do the Danes have good police system, Neil?" I, I don't know enough about the Danish police to be able to speak to that. Are question. there models, though, outside America, Norway, Singapore, are these countries, Korea, these countries always seem to come up as models for America? Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, you know, commend the, the Singaporean police necessarily. Yeah, I'm sure I, I wouldn't fancy, uh, yeah, getting caught in Singapore with uh, some drugs or something. I, I yeah. probably shouldn't what, mention them. But are, are there, in all seriousness, are there 
other models of police. I mean, I want to get onto your three examples in Walk the Walk of police chiefs who reform. But uh, uh, you're, you're a scholar of this when you get your students to think about comparative policing around the world. Are there systems that seem to work better than others? You know, I would say that there are elements of systems in other places that work better than others. Uh, it's it's not clear uh, exactly on what uh, metrics one would would do kind of overall comparisons. Uh, you know, for example, just to uh, get a little bit more specific, um, it is the case uh, in, um, in in at least some Western European countries, uh, Germany, for example, uh, where uh, police officers are uh, have to undergo much more extensive uh, educational uh, uh, trainings than they do in the U.S., um, where where uh, that training is also uh, not just longer but also more academic. Uh, that's that's also the good. Uh, there are uh, other countries you mentioned a number of Scandinavian ones where uh, now the proportion of police officers of incoming police officers um, who are women uh, has has grown quite dramatically that I think connects up very much to you mentioned Rosa Brooks's work earlier she's a, a big proponent of uh, increasing the number of women in policing and that's something that uh, certainly is a uh, an important change you know I don't know of any country that's doing everything right uh, but there are places that are that are doing things right but I will say one thing that's intriguing about the US uh, is that it's a very big place uh, with uh, thousands of different police departments. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, while in general, American policing uh, certainly has its problems, uh, and while we can think of uh, many departments that are doing poorly, there are also departments that are doing uh, comparatively quite well. And that's really what my book focused on. I think we've- Right, so we've... the book is, um, the subtitle of the book is How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. So it's a book, finally, where you acknowledge the problems, but you recognize that it can be changed. And, and, and you go around the country to Colorado, California, and Georgia. Tell us about the background to the book before we get to the specifics of these three police chiefs, Neil. Sure. You know, this, this book arose out of uh, conversations that I had with my students at Colby. I started uh, teaching about uh, policing when I moved to Colby in, in 2015, and uh, we uh, would read, we, we do read for a class I teach on, on the police, uh, you know, books about all the significant problems with American policing from uh, racial inequalities and the use of violence to, uh, to, uh, to, to brutality, to other inequalities in the justice system. Um, and my students would often come away feeling very uh, frustrated uh, and, and also um, a bit despondent as though, you know, there, there was kind of no solution to this, to this problem. Um, and, you know, some of them would ask me, well, are there any examples of departments that are, that are doing things right? And uh, and I didn't really know of any. I certainly knew about efforts at reform that had been undertaken, uh, for example, in cities that had uh, been subject to federal uh, oversight and intervention. Uh, but I didn't really know whether uh, whether there were any places that had had managed to turn themselves around. And so I set out to, to find out. So I began scouring the data, uh, talking to people. I had lots of conversations with experts where I'd say, tell me about departments that are that are failing. And it was easy for them to, to tick off departments that they thought were failing. And failing, uh, uh, what criteria? What did fail mean? Failing at, uh, at, at crime control, failing at uh, providing equal justice to citizens, uh, failing at uh, democratic accountability, uh, failing at, uh, uh, at, at humaneness um, in, their, in their responses. So it was, it was not hard for them to, to tell me places that were, uh, were not succeeding on those metrics. Um, and it took a while before um, people began to come forward with with names of agencies that they thought were were doing better. And so I began doing investigating um, a lot of on the uh, you know going around to different places to see whether uh, right. those initial insights panned out. And and these three uh, stood out to me. So you went to uh, so there's Lagrange in Georgia, 
um, Longmont in California and Colorado and Stockton yep. in California. Uh, sorry, Longmont in Colorado and, mm -hmm. and Stockton in California. Um, the, the Chiefs, so Louis Demar, Eric Jones, Mike Butler. Do they all have something in common? A major focus of, of this book is uh, cop culture. You know, we, we've known for years, scholars of the police, that, uh, that there are uh, there's a particular system of norms and values that, that many police officers share. Um, and the features of that culture include an us versus them attitude, uh, a strong concern with danger on the street, uh, the desire on the part of cops to, to not take any um, uh, flack from anyone that they're dealing with, uh, resistance to calling out uh, their, their brothers in blue. We've known for a long time that this culture uh, exists uh, and, and is very influential in shaping uh, police behavior. Um, what we haven't known uh, exactly is, is what a better kind of cop culture would be. Uh, and there's some good evidence to suggest that if, if you want to reform the police, it's as important to change the culture as it is to change policies and laws. Because you know, at the end of the day, if you've got great policies, but uh, no one on the street is uh, enforcing those, those policies, you don't have supervisors present when cops are interacting with citizens at all times, then the cops will revert to uh, what they normally do, which is what their culture tells them they, they, they ought to do, how they ought to behave. So what these three chiefs have in common is that they, they all aimed at reforming policies. They all tightened up use of force policies, for example. They all tried to um, professionalize their departments. Uh, they all worked against uh, 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 racial inequities. But beyond that, uh, they all tried to shift the culture of their departments. And they did this in different ways with different strategies. But, but that's one thing that they all had in common. And to some degree, they all managed to achieve a level of success at that. Tell me a little bit about these these characters. They're, you know, I think very few of, of, of our viewers or listeners, unless they've seen your book, will know about Louis Dakmar or, um, uh, or or Chief Mike Butler from Longmont, Colorado, or um, uh, Eric, Chief Eric Jones from Stockton, who I think now has gone to Sacramento. Uh, but these people are these people particularly brave, determined, or are they just police officers who want to play by the rules and recognize that uh, that they have to change? A combination of both, I think. Um... Uh, and I, I, I came to them through different routes. I'll, I'll tell you a story um, uh, about, about Mike Butler in Longmont uh, when I was having these initial conversations to try to find... Uh, yeah, he find, looks for people just listening. The guy looks like the absolute policeman. He's got a policeman's face. I don't know if he has a policeman's manner, but he mm. looks like a policeman. I think in a lot of respects, um, Mike Butler sounds, and sounds like a professor if you listen to him talk. He's, he's very, um, mm. very smart. He's very thoughtful. Um, uh, very, very well read. Uh, I first right, came you, to him. You, you've, you've been a policeman and now you're a professor. So maybe oh, thank you. You have thank something you. in common with Mike Butler. Maybe I, I, I first uh, connected with him. I was on a, a phone call. Um, I was in my backyard in Maine uh, and we were talking on the phone and he said, you know, one of my goals in Longmont has been to separate policing from the criminal justice system. And I thought, what does that mean? Uh, I have to get out to Longmont and, and, and try to figure it out. Um, so he's an intriguing guy, uh, um, you know, uh, not a particularly unusual background for someone in, in law enforcement, um, you know, went into it at a relatively early age, uh, um, sort of fell in love with the idea of, um, of, of holding people accountable for, for misbehavior, um, but also had a strong uh, um, sense of justice uh, and, and of the need for 
um, equal justice and, and a, um, a spiritual belief uh, uh, in um, the power of redemption uh, and in the idea that you know everyone ought to uh, be given a, a, a fair chance. Um, so he uh, worked for many years for Boulder PD, uh, not uh, not too far from uh, from Denver, and then uh, and then when the opportunity arose, uh, he he uh, took a chief's position at, at Longmont. Um, so he set out to. Uh, produce a, a better department, a department that would be committed to uh, community well-being, and, and he made some moves that are, are really unusual, uh, that that are kind of well in line with what many um, uh, reform activists have been calling for now. Except he's been working on this for for decades. He pushed his department toward a restorative justice, for example. So instead of having his officers make arrests for minor offenses, uh, they would have the option of steering people toward a community-based. Um, uh, uh, a volunteer organization that would um, bring them together with bring the offenders together with uh, with victims uh, of crimes to uh, to try to bring about a sense of closure that way. Um, he focused on a, a harm reduction approach to drug use. Uh, so instead of uh, clamping down on uh, on people who who use uh, uh, who use narcotics, he um, tried to get his officers to um, ensure that they caused as little harm to themselves and others as possible. And then finally, very much uh, interested in questions of of community involvement. So he worked on all these fronts, but more than anything, he tried to bring a different ethos to the police department and, and was remarkably successful in doing so. All the chiefs have different stories, uh, but they all sought to, to bring about a, a different vision of policing in their communities. And so in that respect, they were all a little bit unusual. They were innovators. They sought to bring about uh, real change uh, in the institution. Neil, one of your previous books, are Why Are Professors Liberal and Why Do Conservatives Care?, the politics of this, of course, are enormously important. Um, were or are uh, the, the three police chiefs you deal with, are, are they all Democrats? Are they all progressives? Or can one be a conservative, maybe even a Republican, and still try to reform the police? One thing that uh, intrigued me about these different communities is that their politics are quite different. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I don't know the, the precise politics of all these, all these chiefs. I think they all tried very hard to be police chiefs first uh, and, uh, and, um, uh, and people with political views second. Uh, and I think that's, that was very important to all of them. Uh, you know, generally speaking, um, uh, you know, one of the chiefs, uh, Lou Deckmar in, in Georgia is a, a more conservative guy. Um, you know, my sense is that uh, Mike Butler is, uh, you know, somewhat more on the progressive side, although his views are a little hard to uh, to, to pin down, uh, and you know, maybe Eric Jones is is somewhere in the center. It's, it's not entirely clear. Um, so I think their politics weren't the main thing that mattered. Uh, the main thing that mattered was that they were um, uh, open to new ways of doing things. They they recognized, as many many officers and chiefs do around the country, that uh, policing isn't working uh, as well as it should be. Uh, that many people aren't happy with the institution, um, and and they set out to change. Neil can't help noticing in our highly sensitized culture that all the three heroes of your book um, are all white, white men. Um, as you've already noted, much of the criminality of the police historically and today has been directed against blacks, particularly black men. Is it coincidental, do you think, that the three figures in your book are white men? Could a black man, a, a black head of police, have done the same thing? Or would they have found more challenges, more controversies? I think that's a, a great question. Uh, and um, 
you, you know, there, these are three chiefs out of out of thousands, and so I, I make no uh, representations that that these are the the only three chiefs uh, doing interesting and innovative things, and and, and indeed they're not. Uh, and there are many uh, chiefs uh, in other departments that I think um, are are um, have been pushing their departments in, in great directions, um, and uh, and certainly the um, the um, the, the racial identity of, of those chiefs uh, varies quite dramatically. Um, you know, I think one thing that's interesting uh, about uh, the chiefs that I profiled is that uh, in some cases they were able to push uh, uh, their white officers uh, toward um, uh, more equitable treatment uh, of, uh, of citizens of color. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's a goal that many police officers and many police chiefs should, should aspire to. Uh, I, I I do think it's the case that um, in particularly in departments that are um, uh, where the officers are uh, are majority uh, white, um, that uh, that chiefs who are brought in uh, with a real reform agenda, whatever their own racial identity, um, can face real pushback from from cops, from unions. You know, one thing that was intriguing to me about all three of these chiefs is that they were um, they were very strategic about the changes that they wanted to make. Um, they, they knew that they wanted to bring about a, a different model of policing. Uh, some proceeded uh, very slowly and carefully. Um, some um, were interested uh, first and foremost in, in, in traditional police goals like combating crime uh, and, uh, and their interest in reform sort of emerged secondary to that. Uh, and others themselves had their views evolve over the course of their time as, as chiefs. Um, so they were all reformers, but they, uh, they didn't come in uh, uh, necessarily with the goal First and foremost of, of, of reform, they um, they allowed that reform agenda to emerge and, and often emerge in conversations with uh, with community members. So to answer your question, I, I think um, uh, there is uh, you know certainly uh, nothing about the idea of changing a department that um, uh, that requires any particular uh, uh, you know racial configuration from 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 leadership. I think what what's really required is um, is uh, is a commitment to creativity, uh, to innovation, and, and a real kind of a strategic capacity to figure out how to how to push your department forward against against resistance. Yours isn't the only recent book that's focusing on p police reform. Uh, you had a, an interesting piece recently in the Atlantic. Two other new books: uh, one uh, by Joanna Schwartz, Shielded; the other by uh, uh, Ali Winston and Darwin Bong Graham. The Riders Come Out at Night. Uh, both books about policing. What do these books tell us and how do they complement or perhaps contradict what you're arguing in Walk the Walk? Well, I don't know if they would contradict it. I, I think that they um, come to, to um, come at the issue from a different perspective. Um, Joanna Schwartz is a, a terrific law professor uh, at UCLA uh, and, and her book is a study of uh, all of the different ways in which um, uh, it is hard uh, to hold police departments and police officers uh, accountable uh, for their actions. And her main focus is on uh, ways in which uh, the, the, the legal regimes that we operate under uh, make it hard to, to sue police departments, to sue police officers and, and win. And, right. and now, I guess her book would be read in, 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 I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Hayes' new book, The Secret Files, the way mm -hmm. in which de Blasio... Um, was in some sort of rather unsavory alliance with the NYPD in terms of his broken promises of police reform. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I think I think that book is um, is important, and I think uh, one of the her main calls is for um, an end to the the doctrine of, of qualified immunity. Um, I think that's that's super important. You know, one of the arguments that I I want to advance in Walk the Walk is that you know while changes of that kind uh, are crucial, while policy change is important, it's just not going to produce change on the ground in the absence of a change in culture. That that both of those pieces are are vitally important, and I actually think that. Uh, that's an argument you mentioned. The, the other book, The Riders Come Out at Night, about reform in the Oakland Police Department. I think there's there's different ways of reading that book. I I, I come across come out with a, a somewhat more optimistic reading of it, um, which is that um, there um, uh, a consent decree uh, led eventually to the department to change in real directions. But it was really only when um, you had leadership at the top of the department that that was interested in pushing. Uh, it, the culture of the agency forward, uh, that, that the consent decree began to yield real results. So it's the combination of policy change, accountability, and a cultural shift that seems to be so important in catalyzing good policing. And so that's really what I want to focus on. Again, in all three of the departments I studied, there were important policy changes that were made. There was an effort at accountability, but there was also this concerted effort at changing the culture of policing. That, again, that meant different things in different places. In Stockton, it was a focus on something called procedural justice. In LaGrange, it was a focus on, on professionalism, on rule following, and eventually on uh, an idea of racial reconciliation. And in Longmont, it was a focus on social responsibility and, and humaneness, first and foremost. Um, so it meant different things in different departments, but all three chiefs ended up being quite conscious of the need uh, to produce that kind of cultural shift. Neil, you wrote an interesting piece recent, a couple of years ago for the New York Times, an op-ed. Uh, the headline was, Want to Abolish the Police? Consider Becoming an Officer Instead. That's what Rosa Brooks did. You began life as a police officer. A couple of questions on this. Firstly, why did you stop there? Tell me, the, tell me about your life as a police officer. You began in Berkeley. Why did you stop being a police officer? Mm. Uh, and, and secondly... Is one of the challenges in America that police officers are not only are not respected now, rather like teachers, I guess, but they're not paid properly? Uh, so the pay piece varies a lot uh, depending on um, where you're talking about. Uh, so police officers in California, for example, are paid very, very well. Uh, in other communities... Very they, well meaning what? What does that very well mean? Uh, well, it would depend on, on the city uh, and on the level of experience, but, uh, but you know, pay that would be... Um, you know, commensurate with what you'd expect for a, a, um, a, a white collar professional. Uh, so these are more kind of white collar level paying jobs um, in California. In Georgia, for example, um, which is one of the places I studied, uh, pay levels are, are, are significantly lower. So there's a lot of variation. A lot of that has to do with unionization, some with cost of living. Um, so there's a lot of variation. For me, uh, you know, I went into policing. I was very young. Uh, I didn't been interested in this all through all through high school. Um, I didn't come from a police background at all. Um, my, my father worked for the University um, uh, of California, uh, and so it was an unusual choice of occupation for me. Um, and I worked part-time for uh, different police agencies while I was uh, going through college, then eventually joined the Berkeley Police Force full-time, was sent to the academy, uh, and, and served about 11 months on, on the streets. Um, it was really young. Uh, in, in this country, we, uh, we often hire police officers very young, uh, you know, 21, 22. Uh, and when I hit the street, I found that, um, that the, the culture of the department was uh, somewhat different than I'd expected. I'd been around it for a while, um, but I, I had these idealistic aims going into policing. You know, I wanted to uh, make my community safer and, and work to improve policing from the inside. And, and I found uh, that uh, there was certainly some interest in that on the street. You know, cops in Berkeley were uh, a more professional 
um, kind of well-educated group than they were in some surrounding communities. Uh, but there was an element of, of traditional police culture there that I was uh, in some ways underprepared for. More generally, uh, I just realized I was too young to do the job well. Um, you know, I'd get called to situations and, you know, I, I was a pretty mature, I think, you know, 22 year old, um, uh, but uh, there were just things that I, I wasn't prepared to uh, to handle and to handle um, as well as I should have. Uh, and so I, I decided to take a hiatus and, um, and leave. And I thought, you know, maybe I could uh, improve policing more as a professor than I could uh, as a cop. So that was my, my, own, my own story. You think the police need to be a little bit more careful in terms of who they take? I read somewhere, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that a, quite a significant proportion of police officers are coming uh, from the military, particularly people who were in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're bringing some of their military culture uh, and perhaps some of the, the um, shall we say, the... Uh, um, the wounds of war mentally or otherwise into domestic police departments? I mean, I, I, I don't think that uh, military service should, should disqualify one from, from being a police officer um, uh, at all. Is there a higher um, proportion though? Is there a fairly significant proportion of ex-military people who go into the police? So uh, there is a relatively high proportion. That, that number, that proportion has fallen uh, as we have, you know, gotten further and further away from a period of, 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 of a draft, right? So as we've moved toward an all-volunteer force, um, the proportion of all Americans who are serving has gone down, and the proportion of police officers who are veterans has gone down. Uh, there are still some departments uh, that uh, uh, offer a leg up in recruitment to people with, uh, with, who, are, who are veterans uh, with some military experience. Um, you know, I, on the selectivity piece, uh, I think it's a challenge. Um, you know, right now, uh, many police departments are hurting when it comes to recruitment. Um, it's been hard uh, to fill those positions. That's true for many industries. Uh, it's a tight labor market. Um, it, 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 I don't know that it's necessarily more true for policing than it is for other, other forms of public service, uh, but certainly um, it's not an institution that has a, a, a terrific reputation right now, and that's made it harder to fill the ranks. Um, and uh, you know, the police need to do background checks and um, uh, mental health evaluations, psychological screenings, those kinds of things. Um, so uh, we do need to be careful about who we take, um, but I think many departments are finding it challenging that the more careful they are, the more selective they are, the harder it is to fill those positions. And, and so you see departments now uh, beginning to back away from, um, from educational requirements. For example, departments that had once had a four-year degree requirement are now um, sometimes edging back and requiring uh, two years of college. And, and sometimes those that had a two-year college requirement are now edging back as well. Um, so selectivity is, is crucially important. We need to know who's serving these important functions. Um, but it's also um, it's very hard to recruit, to recruit personnel at the moment. Neil, we've done a lot of shows on the ideal of public service in America, both militarily and otherwise. Would it be a good idea to start thinking about everyone in America for a year or six months being a police person, being on the street, working at their police, local police station? Would that, I know that would probably be rather ambitious, maybe not very practical, but is it an idea that perhaps Joe Biden might develop? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I, I can understand where you might be going, coming from with that suggestion. Um, uh, and that would be the idea that um, 
perhaps people would would gain some greater experience and we'd, we'd be recruiting um, you know a wider variety of folks into law enforcement and there there's certainly some rationale for that I think the bigger uh, demand and push now is for cops who are going to be um, who are going to be responsible well-educated well-trained professionals uh, and you know that's sort of at odds with the suggestion that everybody serves a cop for a year um, you know I, I think if anything um, what we need now is a commitment to um, to an, an upgraded police force. Um, you know, police officers have a difficult job. There are, you know, uh, three quarters of a million of them. Many do their jobs admirably well uh, with real respect for citizens. Uh, but, but we all know of incidents where that's not the case. Uh, and I think if anything, we need to think about, you know, what we can do to make the profession one that is, uh, is uh, even more professional than it is now. And I think that would require uh, getting folks on who wanna do it for the long haul and who wanna do it for the right reasons. Let's end with some practical um, ideas from you. You wrote an interesting piece a couple of years ago in the New York Times. Uh, is it possible to reform the police uh, and how to end racial disparity in, in vehicle stops? There are people, of course, like one of our guests, Baynard Woods, who simply see the American system and particularly the police system as a white, white racist totalitarian one. You obviously don't do that. What can we do? in concrete terms, Neil, to begin to reform this system? You've talked broadly about culture, and that's the main message in Walk the Walk, and, and I think uh, most people would agree with you. But are there concrete things that Biden could do in the next couple of years? In our conversation with um, Alex Vitale, for example, I asked him about what Biden should do about policing. I'm not sure he'd be on the same page as Vitale. What could Biden do that's realistically realistic politically and in terms of resources that could be done to begin to reform the American police system? You know, I, I think uh, it, it is the case that to some extent uh, the president's hands are tied. I, I think the um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, you know, seems like it's, it's not going to pass anytime soon. Um, you know, that said, I think that there is a possibility here for federal intervention. And um, and I would argue that uh, that one of the main things that the president could do, and certainly that Congress could do, would be to um, would be to uh, uh, pass legislation that would provide uh, real grants for departments that are willing to make these changes, uh, mm -hmm. that are willing to prioritize cultural change, willing to prioritize innovation. You know, we do some of that now. Uh, we do not nearly enough of it, uh, and the result is that we kind of have the the same old, same old. You know, many of the changes that the president has pushed through, um, you know push towards something called community policing. That's a very vague and ill-defined term. I'd like to see uh, a lot more federal money be available uh, for departments that are, are like Longmont or like LaGrange that are, that are really trying to take seriously the idea of producing a, a policing that is, uh, is humane, is equitable, um, is effective, uh, and, and that are willing to um, you know, utterly uh, uh, alter what goes on in their departments. You, know, you mentioned very practical things. A lot of those changes, I think, are, are at the local level. One of the arguments I make in that the New York Times piece was about uh, racial disparities in vehicle stops specifically. And I think there, there are some really concrete changes that departments could, could do. One thing that I've always been struck by is, um, is the lack of real-time data in policing. You know, this was something that, um, that the NYPD was very concerned with um, during the period when it, um, it developed this whole system called CompStat, um, which tried to hold uh, local uh, precinct commanders uh, accountable for, um, for crimes that were occurring, crime patterns that were occurring on their watch. You know, we don't do really anything like that for um, for equity in policing. Uh, so, you know, it might be the case that a police department would produce statistics on a quarterly basis uh, on racial disparities in its vehicle stops. 
but police department should be producing those statistics on a weekly basis uh, for, for particular shifts. So sergeants should know, right, at the end of their shift, you know, is Officer X stopping, um, you know, black motorists far more mm. than white motorists? Uh, and if so, you know, that's behavior that needs to change. So I think one thing that departments could do immediately would be to do much more of that kind of real-time equity-focused uh, data development. Uh, and, and that could make a huge difference. Uh, you know, one thing that's true of policing is that, uh, there are many tasks that the police have set their minds to, and, and when they take those tasks seriously, they can sometimes achieve them. Um, so, you know, if this was a goal that departments had, we're, we're going to be much more equitable in, uh, in the way that we uh, handle traffic stops. Uh, we're going to generate the data on a real-time basis that will let us do it. I think we could make some real strides. There are other changes that might be made as well around what are called pretextual stops. But from my point of view, you know, the real thing that has to happen now, the real conversation that we need in this country is how are we going to get a better police culture? It's not it's not. A, it's important to demand policy change. It's important to demand legal accountability. All that stuff's important. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that it's going to produce the kind of changes that we want uh, unless the cops come to think about their jobs differently. And some do. Some think about their jobs in exactly the way that, that they ought to. Uh, and, and we need to do whatever we can to, um, to, to kind of tell the stories of departments and officers that are, that are thinking about them, their jobs in new ways so that other agencies can emulate them.